Welcome to this latest update on the COP26 meetings in Glasgow with me, Ian Welsh. Thursday was billed as Energy Day and there certainly was a lot to talk about coal. COP26 President Alok Sharma struck a positive note when he said that the end of coal is in sight. He must have good eyesight as we're still talking about decades of coal burning for electricity, particularly in developing economies. But that said, ever more countries are making commitments to come out of coal completely and on specific timeframes. 190 nations and organisations have now pledged to quit coal entirely. Glaring by their absence from the no coal party though are China, the US, India and Australia. China continues to be the big outlier, of course, only going as far as to say it will phase down its use of coal from 2026. But in the short term, coal mines have been ordered by Beijing to increase production to avoid power shortages in the short term. And the US still gets over 80% of its energy from fossil fuels. President Biden did, of course, reaffirm the US's commitment to net zero by 2050 earlier in the week. So clearly, a rapid growth in renewables across the US is going to be necessary. I've got two guests today. Coming up very shortly is Una Kent, Vice President for CSR International at Walgreens Boots Alliance. First up, though, is Mike Barry, an old friend of the podcast, not least in his previous role as the architect of Marks & Spencer's Plan A Sustainability Strategy. He is a veteran of many COP meetings. So I was keen to get his reaction to how he sees the progress so far in Glasgow. Joining me now is Mike Barry. Consultant and Sustainability Supremo Extraordinaire. So, Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be with you, Ian. What are your impressions of the COP26 meetings so far? Never has the saying, glass half full or half empty, been more accurately used than this. I mean, if I look through the science lens, it's half empty, more than half empty. Heated by 1.1 degrees C, we fundamentally underestimate how much impact even a small amount of additional heating is going to have on us. One in 10,000 year floods in China and and Germany this uh, summer, devastating wildfires across North America. That's 1.1. It's not a linear progression through 1.5 and 2. It's going to be devastating. We've seen how quickly a pandemic, a sewage canal blockage can bring our global high-tech economy to its knees. Just think what this sort of multiplication of intense extreme weather events is going to have on our food systems, etc. As we try and get crammed 9 billion people onto the planet. So I'm very much half empty in terms of the ability of COP26 to deliver to deal with the science. However, I'm a pragmatist. And if I look through half full in terms of the politics, think where we were six months ago being told that we would be on paper keeping heating below 1.9 degrees C from the NDCs. I'd of course taken that. So right now, I'm sort of a little bit caught on the tightrope. I'll give you a definitive view at the end of all this. I do like China coming on board. 2070 people are complaining 2070 is way too late. It's the first step. One of the most important countries on the planet that's caused so much less damage than the rest of us. So let's give them the space to come on this journey. And of course, we've got the mini deals on coal, on methane, et cetera, and forests, which are great, but again, have to be turned into action. Yeah, it did feel like the announcement on Wednesday when it was the University of Melbourne from Australia said that, in fact, now we're looking at a less than two degrees Celsius future. That did feel like a big moment, given how bad the numbers and the graphs we've all seen them had become. So that was, for me, was the biggest moment so far. The big world leader level announcements on forests and everything else have hit the headlines, but what are the details that you've picked up on that you're excited about? Yeah, I mean, two or three things I, I think lurking beneath the surface. I like the deal with South Africa to help South Africa decarbonise or take coal out of its energy system, partly because South Africa is uniquely vulnerable to the impact of climate change. It's also uniquely polluting with a heavily coal-based system today, but also the socio-economic challenges that country faces with a grid that's barely fit for purpose today, constant blackouts out there. 
So the ability to actually build a system that's resilient, that delivers both clean power and enables economic development for a country that needs it, love that. And the $8.5 billion that's gone into sort of making it happen. Hopefully there's a model there that we can take to other developing countries as well. Like the work that the UK and India have done on green grids, again, the ability to build a grid that's fit for the future and sort of allow a lot of developing countries to hop a generation of grid management. So not replicate all the pylons littering the landscape that we've got, but creating much more resilient, either local, regional, beyond the national border, uh, grid systems, incredibly important. So I think that grid one's important to me as well. And I do like the breakthrough agenda uh, um, that's been announced, you know, the work on power, road transport, steel, hydrogen and agriculture, because I think that faces into a fundamental challenge. How do we make this all happen cost effectively? Because as, soon, as long as the steel is 10% more or the car is 10% more or the home is 10% more to do green, we're really going to struggle to convince people to come with us. I think facing into that cost challenge, not just in developed economies like the UK, but around the world, and aiming for at least parity and ideally cheaper, I think is critically important. So that's just three things that stood out for me behind the big announcements. Yeah, you're right. The, the transfer of money from the developed world to the developing world, that seems to be a real theme developing across a lot of these announcements. And that's probably just being realistic, as you said in your first answer. So Rishi Sunak, UK Chancellor of the Exchequer, announced on Wednesday that larger companies in the UK will have to set out their net zero plans. How significant is that, do you think? I love that. I think transparency, just like a tax on, or price on carbon, is one of the small number of huge levers that you can pull to actually really change the system. It's a really brave business in the future that sort of ducks the need to actually disclose what it's doing in the world of social media. However, we saw with the Modern Slavery Act statements about five years ago, government brought it in. We thought, brilliant, businesses would have to step forward and really take modern day slavery uh, disclosure and transparency seriously. What happened? They all produced a nice shiny document saying we take this important issue seriously, stick it on the corner of the website and nothing changed because there's no requirement to actually put something into the public domain, update it each year with a performance against it. So my word of warning on Rishi's, I think on the surface, very good words is there has to be a whole ecosystem then to make sure that people deliver publicly, report on their progress in terms of the claims that they're making. So that much I like. I like, you know, the fact that much more TCFD is going to have to come into the boardroom. I've seen this more and more with businesses I'm working out there, this ability of a board to really think through what this means for its long-term prospects. And it's not just about reputational risk, meeting the law. It's also about disruption of your marketplace. I mean, if you're a diesel car company and you don't think it's an electric future, you've had it. Same with a meat-based diet going to a plant-based one. Wherever I look, there's economic marketplace disruption as well as reputational regulation disruption as well. And I want as an investor to know that my business that I'm investing into has saw, seen how quickly the marketplace can shift in preparing for it, not leading me holding stranded assets. So I'm a great supporter of what's happening in that space. But the final point on this, of course, is the risk of greenwash. The ability of businesses to come out with a lot of BS saying, look, I've got a report, job done. We've got to have a really clear taxonomy, as the EU is doing. We've got the new International Systemic Standards Board's work, I think it's really important. And of course, the science-based target initiative's work to come up with a standard for net zero. Because the number of Mickey Mouse net zero claims I've seen from businesses out there, one of my ultimate bugbears in this space is the number of businesses that are signing up to be net zero by 2050. That's what whole nation states deliver 2050. If you're a fraction of a fraction of that economy, get there much quicker. 2040, the latest, not just for scopes one and two, but scope three as well. So they're the things I'm looking for. But on the surface, at least, transparency disclosure is critically important. 
On the point around the due diligence, do you think that the voluntary approach to standards, and then with the name and shame being the only sanction, is that out the picture now? That was the way that the Modern Slavery Act was brought in. And as you say, all that happened was there was a few companies put something on the website and then forgot about it. Is due diligence with legislative teeth the only way to go forward now? Yes, it is. I get a lot of business leaders turning around and saying, oh, but Mike, you can't bring a law in for everything. I agree with that. But I would bring one law in, which is fundamentally disclose what you're doing and your performance against it. The micro detail about how you get to where you need to get to, I'd leave to a degree to the marketplace. We can't regulate for every nook and cranny of what everybody does. But the fundamental top level note that says this is what this business stands for, what our footprint is, what it's going to be in the future and how we progress in getting there, that absolutely has to be managed. There have been a lot of commitments from private sector over the past few days. You work with private sector companies all the time. So what's your sense of how things have changed in terms of corporate appetite for change? I mean, there's no two ways about it. The last six to 12 months has been an absolute sea change, albeit from a very, very low baseline of business involvement with this. We all know the Unilevers, the Ikeas, they get this, they've been doing it for years. Good luck to them. But I'm looking at the hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of companies that just no one's ever heard of and are doing very little on this. Now, I think what's driving change is probably two or threefold. One is scope three emissions. So if I look what the 1.5 degree supply chain leaders group's done up in Glasgow, announcing the development of website to share best practice with other companies to engage their suppliers, critically important. For little old Marks and Spencer, you know, the supply chain was a couple of thousand suppliers and 20,000 farmers. Walmart's 25 times bigger, do the maths. For a Unilever, 60,000 suppliers. If you can get Unilever to drive as they are and mandate climate action down across that huge ecosystem very quickly, run wait for 60,000 companies to stumble across themselves across this individually, you get scale action quickly. So I'm a great believer in scope three. More and more businesses signing it up to net zero, scopes one, two, and three. Brilliant. So that's one pressure that's coming in through the business system. The other is the citizen, the person that buys from business. And again, I'm not a great believer in the fact that we've got to pass to people now personal carbon footprint and say, responsibility is yours. This is about big business and big politics sorting out. However, Citizens send a signal to timid business leaders and timid politicians that we're actually, we're with you and we want action. I've just looked at 200 different surveys of citizens from around the world, how they feel about the climate crisis during the pandemic. 70% of people in virtually every market are somewhat or very concerned about the climate crisis. That's permission to act. Of course it is. So I think what we've seen in Glasgow, two or three things really stood out for me. I love the commitment on sports. 273 sports bodies from around the world coming together to make this accessible to the man or woman in the street. You support the New York Yankees. You support Munster Rugby Club. You're a member of Welsh Triathlon. You're all being put climate action in front of you. That's the way to get the masses engaged. The same with television. Again, the UK TV companies, BBC, Sky, ITV, Channel 4, stepping forward and saying, we will make climate not just a news article, but much more relevant in our day-to-day programming. That's important. And also like a little bit of what the B Corp movement is doing now. I think the B Corp movement was peripheral, even two, three years ago. I think it's got real momentum now. And it's really starting to shake things up. I think there's a great event tomorrow, Friday, the B Corp movement talking about its role in the finance sector, doing things very differently. So all around me, I start to see business doing things differently. But my end point on business is race to zero. I was at COP21 in Paris, great political success. You know, quite a few business leaders like me dotted around. But Race to Zero has taken it to another level of organisation and momentum to remind politicians business supports change, the economy, the dollar sign wants change. So hats off to Nigel for getting Race to Zero sorted out. Let's hope it's got legs into 2022 as well. So just give us some expectations then for the rest of COP. We're halfway through the first week. 
What do you think is going to happen through the next 10 days or so? Well, I think we're going to see lots of small and medium-sized commitments, and that's not a bad thing. Remember, relying on one big pronouncement by presidents and politicians is a beginning, not an end, and we need this detailed, granular implementation across every part of the economy and society. So I'm looking through that, that now and saying that's almost a given. I think we're walking out of COP26 reasonably happy with where we've got. So I'm sort of a little bit more concerned about what next. And I'm sort of thinking about the two or three things I'm not seeing acted upon yet. And I'm somewhat sceptical, Will. I mean, the first one is subsidies. It's insane that we're given a free pass to the aviation industry, the food and farming industry, the fossil fuel industry, because we're subsidising them to pollute. At least put them on the level playing field with a greener, low carbon alternative. That then sort of links in with the price and carbon. Absolutely support price and carbon across the economy. Yes, it's difficult. We know it's difficult. But it's one of the fundamental things, a bit like transparency and disclosure, that you can bring to the marketplace and then lead the marketplace to sort out the actual detail. But you put a fair price on carbon. I'm looking at what China does. Now, I'm a reasonably positive about China. China's been sat obviously on the sidelines of COP26. But I actually think China will be a really significant player in the next decade. There's lots of reasons why it's playing its cards close to its chest. But I think what China does next year will be critically important in terms of delivering the 2030 goals that are starting to emerge. And my final point is where I started the science. I'm really concerned about the global food sector. It's the biggest source of pollution on the planet, and not just in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, deforestation, biodiversity loss, water loss, soil loss, blah, 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 blah. But I'm also really concerned about the impacts upon it. So if I look at extreme droughts, I look at the extreme heat, I look at extreme flooding, it is uniquely vulnerable to its ability to actually service the needs of 7.7 billion people, heading towards 9 billion. Remember, 750 million people go to bed every morning, every day starving already, wasting 40% of all calories produced every human mouth. As we start to get more and more weather extremes, the impacts on the precarious food system are going to grow. And again, 2022 is critically important for me, is making sure we start to make that food system more resilient. Yeah, indeed. Not really enough really focusing on the food supply. There's been a lot of talk all around it, but not the actual focus on the food supply system itself. And I think you're absolutely right. It needs to be more of a direct focus. Mike, always a pleasure. Thanks very much for your time and see you again soon. Absolute pleasure, Ian. Take care. And my thanks to Mike. I was also lucky enough to catch up yesterday with fellow Glaswegian Una Kent, Vice President for CSR International at Walgreens Boots Alliance. Joining me now is Una Kent, who's Vice President for CSR International at Walgreens Boots Alliance. Welcome to the podcast, Una. Hi, Ian. Thanks very much for having me. You're in Glasgow. In fact, you live in Glasgow, but you've been attending some of the COP meetings. So what have you been, you've been doing at COP26? Yeah, that's right. I live in Glasgow. I can't hide it with this accent, can I? So our focus at COP26 has been two areas. First and foremost, we've been shining a light on our new take-back scheme, which is called Recycle at Boots. And it's an opportunity for customers to recycle, hard to recycle bathroom products and beauty products. We know that when it comes to recycling, that that the bathroom and beauty tend to be the ones that are least easy. We have decided to really, really take action on that. We now have in 700 stores across the UK, which reaches about 96% of the population, the opportunity for customers to scan empty bottles, 
to bring them back to our store and to get some advantage card points for recycling. It's a nice circular solution because we take those hard to recycle products and then with our partners, we get them turned into what's called Stormboard, which is then turned into chairs, benches and even... Uh, If you go to our St Enoch store, where we've done a whole window takeover um, to showcase the scheme, a Christmas tree, a very cool seven foot Christmas tree. So that's the first angle. And in addition to that, we know that it's difficult for customers to make smart choices, but our customers tell us that they want to make more informed, more smart choices in their product selection. So we've launched a campaign called Be More. And basically what we've done across the thousands of products that are available at Boots, we've done curated edits that help customers make a smarter and more informed choice, whether they're looking for cruelty-free, whether they're looking for less plastics, whether they're looking for refillable, whatever the issue is that matters to them, we've curated edits of those products to make it really simple to shop. And again, we're featuring that in our St. Enoch's store right in the city centre. So if anybody's in the city centre, they can check it out. It'd be great. So that's part one. And then part two, as you well know, um, a couple of weeks ago, we held a conference together with Innovation Forum looking at climate change and human health and the really, really irrefutable intersection that's happening between those two matters. We're really looking to elevate the presence of healthcare on the agenda. One of the things that we are noticing is, is it's it's pretty absent from the agenda, the idea of health and climate change at COP. And so together with partners that we have been working with for quite some time now, including GSK or and Ricketts and Forum for the Future, we've been holding some panels and doing some activities like the incredible GSK air bubble outside the green zone to shine a light on the intersectionality between climate change and human health and the causes and the impacts that that has, whether it's on things like air pollution and therefore people's ability to breathe, asthma, or other such issues. I'm finally going to get to Glasgow myself tomorrow, so you're already lining up things for me to do. So I will check out the city next door, and I'll certainly, when I'm in the Green Zone next week, I will check out the GSK air bubble. I saw some kids jumping around in it on BBC earlier in the week. Obviously, we're here being involved in the COP process. So what are the benefits to business of the COP process, do you think? Well, I think for me, it's this opportunity to come together with like-minded organisations and other like-minded businesses. And I've mentioned a couple before that we actively work with, and it's great to spend time with them here. But also on some of the panels and the things that we've been I've been participating in or watching, looking at you know that broad spectrum of voices and opinions and views and actively listening because sometimes it's important for businesses and corporations to really listen to what's going on listen to others views it's a simple but honest truth that climate change is such a huge issue and Glasgow is being heralded as a sort of last great hope to keep 1.5 alive and the honest truth is is no one company business government or whatever can do it on their own And so by having a moment in time when all these companies, entities, academia, science come together and just focus and have focused discussion, I think is the greatest value that we get out of it. So there have been some big announcements over the past few days. It's hard to miss them. What of those have you found most exciting? Are you challenged by them or do you think is it really just an element? Well, it's finally we're getting there, getting some progress here. I think it's a mixture. Actually, what's excited me, really 
is actually listening to diverse and inspiring voices. I mean, I was utterly, utterly inspired by India on the opening ceremony because we have such a focus. We are a healthcare-centred company with a healthcare-centred CSR ESG strategy. And when she spoke so beautifully and powerfully about the impact in New Zealand of the Australian bushfires and how in the hospital she was in at the time that that was happening. And she described this smoke cloud that was so enormous that the sun turned red. And she was in hospital at the side of her brother's bed. And the doctor said to her, they have had so many more cases of breathing difficulties due to air pollution. And that reckoning, that moment of understanding that she felt seeing that the health of her country and her um, land and people was so intrinsically linked to that of others. That was incredibly powerful. And there's been so many inspiring Indigenous people's voices throughout. So that's one of the big things that's really inspired me because at the end of the day, it's the people who are least equipped, who are the most to to respond, that are the most impacted by this. I guess that's where I get the most inspiration when I see some of the agreements and discussions that are happening. It's, are we ensure that we are working towards a just transition and working towards a fair result for everybody? Yeah, making sure that the conversation isn't only about how we can mitigate the impact, but more about how we can adapt and bring everyone justly and fairly on that adaptation journey. We're both Glaswegians. It's been very exciting to have these conversations in our home city, isn't it? That's, that's the thing that's been exciting, but the fact they are happening is the most exciting thing for sure. Looking to the crystal ball then, we're halfway through the first week. What are you looking for in terms of outcomes by the end of next week? Okay, so I'll start it from a very personal point of view, right? So as a Glasgow girl, just the fact that this is happening in our beautiful city is incredible. And it's been wonderful kind of interacting with people from different nationalities, different countries and different backgrounds and how universally people have commented on the friendliness and the reception that they've had. I want Glasgow to be remembered for being a phenomenal host and a city who did keep the 1.5 dream alive. Yeah, that, that would be a really big hope for me. And then more coming to the discussions, that idea that somehow we can reach a consensus on tangible action on the big issues, whether it's fossil fuel, and we've heard a bit around methane and things, whether it's electric vehicles, but most importantly for me, as I said before, is a just transition. And when I think about our focus, that idea and that notion that we can raise healthcare up the agenda, if not for COP26, for the next one. Yeah. So that healthcare and the intersection between healthcare and climate change can be given a day, at least, for consideration. And then the last thing I would say to you, which I would always say is, is you know, it was very inspiring when Susan Aiken at the opening ceremony, the leader of Glasgow City Council said, you know, if Glasgow with it's heavy industrial, coal mining, shipbuilding, steelworks background. If Glasgow as a city can set a net zero target, there should be no limit on anybody else being able to do that. So I'd like to hope that that inspiration from Glasgow's own ambition can rub off on everyone over the next probably eight days left now. Couldn't agree more. And certainly I'm looking forward in the future to talking about the Glasgow Accord on Climate Change yeah. rather, than the, rather than the Paris one. Yes. Well, you never know. Una Kent from Wilkins Boots Alliance, thanks very much. You're welcome, thank you.
And further good news on the global temperature rise pathway that the world's decarbonising promises puts us on. The latest number crunching, this time from the International Energy Agency, says that following breaking the 2 Celsius barrier earlier in the week, this has now been cut to 1.8 Celsius. Before the COP26 meetings, of course, the pathway was at 2.7 Celsius. Today, Friday, is dedicated to young people and public empowerment, and a number of youth organisations are going to set out what they want to see from global leaders. I'm going to be in Glasgow attending the Global Landscapes Forum and hopefully talking with a few other participants. So I'll be back with that and other news and views from COP at the same time on Monday. Until then, have a good weekend and goodbye. <laughs>